Today's read, Midnight and the Meaning of Love by Sister Soldier, Part 2, Japan Story, Chapter 10. Felines, Friends, and Wolves. As I waited, standing up straight, not wanting to lean against the rocks and fuck up my wares, I saw a real pretty female climbing up the hill with musical grace and rhythm. Her hips swung left, then right. Her legs crossed one over the other. Her shoulders were high and arched back for leverage. Her full and firm breasts bounced up and down, very slightly but impossible for any man in range not to notice. Through my binoculars, her pretty beige skin was shining as though it had a coat of olive oil over it. Her skin tone was even, light brown all over, unlike a white-skinned woman with a suntan, which sometimes causes blotches of brown, but not everywhere. My high-powered lens took me between those two tight titties, and in there was brown too. Her thighs were well-oiled and glistening exquisitely, yet it was her 500,000 yen alligator sandals with the shapely carved short heel and alligator straps that crisscrossed her pretty toes and wrapped around her slim ankles and wound up around her toned calves and all the way up above her knees and tied on the sides of each thigh that killed me. My jaw dropped. Even my binoculars fogged up. I knew it wasn't Himawadi, who I knew was Japanese. Then I realized that my binoculars fogged because she had arrived and was too close to me to be caught and focused in my lenses. She said he would look. It's impossible for him not to look. The beige girl said, spoken in perfect English with a soft and peaceful manner. Who said, I asked her, trying to control my eyes from traveling off on their own. Your wife? Off guard, I paused. Then my smile came through naturally. Jasta? I asked. Ha, she said. You mean hi? I asked. In Hindi, yes is ha. Japanese, yes, is high. I'll just say yes in English, okay? She settled and smiled. A point two diamond was set in her gums. It appeared sparkling right between two of her pretty, perfectly white teeth. When the sun angled on the diamond, my eyes cast down from the light it tossed. That's when I saw her diamond belly ring set in her navel so sweetly it seemed she might have been born with it. She wore a tight turquoise half tee and a turquoise miniskirt made of soft paper-thin cotton. The loose-fitting thin cloth was decorated with miniature gold-colored bells hanging all around the hem. I was 100% guilty in the glare of the Ramadan sun of admiring such a beautiful girl. These are Akimi sandals, Jasna admitted. It made sense now. That's why her clothing could not compare to the extravagance of her footwear. She made me wear them for you, although I didn't mind at all. 
Again, she smiled, revealing unflawed, brilliantly white teeth. You want to meet Akimi? Yes? She asked me. Definitely, was all I said. She will meet us at my studio, so you should come, if you please. She turned and was more than confident that I would follow her. As her hips swung, the bells jingled, and there was nothing I could do to keep myself from being turned on. She rocked a short, short haircut, the bare minimum. Her hair was an artistic design of jet black swirls, shorter even than finger waves, but glistening and mesmerizing, a style only taken on by a female who is a thousand percent certain of the complete elegance and design of her face. I had to laugh at myself, struggling to remain focused. Allah was not only above comprehension, <clears throat> but Allah also had a dimension of humor, I felt. As I eased up to walk beside her, I could see that instead of earrings, she wore beautiful printed Hindi letters around the perimeter of her ears. Even around her wrist were drawn on jewelries consisting of Sanskrit designs. I wanted to know what it all said and meant. I had no idea. Oddly, she smelled like saffron, a precious and expensive seasoning Uma used and I tasted and enjoyed. Turquoise toes with a thin gold line on each nail. She was a motherfucking work of art. A woman so beautiful a man loses his religion and thoughts and there's nothing left but curses on his tied tongue. Perhaps she was one of my wife's unique drawings come to life. When we, ex- when we reached the last hill remaining to descend before reaching the bus stop and three blocks before reaching the first train station in walking distance, Jasna's musical hips stopped moving, breasts stopped vibrating, her bells came to a slow jingle and then ceased. Seated before her was a wolf on a leash. Its wild eyes flashed a serious warning. It didn't belong on a leash, I thought to myself, yet the leash lowered and then canceled out the threat. As I looked up at the girl walking the wolf, I saw that her eyes were the same as the wolf's, wild, dangerous, filled with energy and completely unpredictable. She was backed up by three girls who seemed invisible standing behind, the ice princess with the peculiar pet. The princess didn't move out of Jasna's way or crack a smile. She looked me over thoroughly from head to foot first and then from foot to head. She was surely pretty, but she was exuding coldness and Jasna was an exquisite, pure blue flame. I could have snapped out of my trance, the one Jasna had cast over me, and moved the cold princess out of her way, but for some unknown reason, the ice princess was wearing my Uma's two gold bangles, one of four bangles, two gold, two diamond, that I had gifted to my wife on our marriage day. Himawari, I said suddenly, having put the pieces together. Her eyes turned away from Jasna and onto me again. Hi, she answered, and with the sound of her voice, 
her wolf stood up on all fours from his previous seated position. She doesn't speak English, Jasna said, in a tone which let me know that these two already knew each other and also suggested that Jasna felt that she was superior to Himawadi. I ignored the bad energy between them since I was the one who had invited Himawadi to meet with me. I checked my date just and saw it was now 2.55 p.m. Uninterrupted, Himawadi would have arrived right on time. Konnichiwa, I greeted Himawadi. Boku wa maonaka Watashi wa Himawadi desu, she responded. The three with her bowed to me, but she did not. Jasta intervened in Japanese, fluent, rapid-fire, soft but powerful Japanese, spoken with passion and emphasis. Himawadi's glare at Jasta was filled with a definite, expertly controlled anger. But she removed the two bangles and handed them to me. <clears throat> she extended her hand toward me. Her nails were unusually long, five inches and lovely and colorful and curved. I reached out my hand. She flipped my palm. Her wolf growled. She spoke softly in Japanese to the wolf as though he was a close and beloved friend. He stopped growling and sat still. She reached out with her other hand, and without her saying anything, one of the invisible girls handed her a pen. She wrote down her telephone number on the inside of my palm, or at least that's what I believed it was. She did print the numbers in English with no extra words or kanji. <clears throat> Arigato gozaimasu, I said to her. Thank you for coming, I added in English. Maybe one of the invisible girls would translate my few words. Then I turned my attention toward Jasna. Her little bells had begun jingling again. Jamata, I said to Himawari, and turned to follow Jasna's bells. After all, she was the one giving me what I wanted, my wife. We rode the train in silence like all the other passengers. I wrote Himawari's phone number down in my notebook. I found myself asking myself stupid questions like, how come Jasna has no polish on her fingernails? Then I answered myself, because like my wife, she is an artist who works with her hands. Staring at her sideways, I thought to myself, she was prettier than a peacock or a cobra or a lynx. Although if she were a wild cat, she would definitely be an exotic cheetah. As I mulled it over in my mind, my thoughts changed directions, separating the beauty of Jasna from the feeling of Jasna. She had the feeling of a mongoose, the swift and beautiful snake killer. Unlike Iwa Ikeda, the hyena, or even Himawadi, the wolf, who was better than Iwa, yet just as unpredictable. <clears throat> Jasna felt like a true friend to Akimi. Furthermore, how clever was Akimi to send them both there to meet me at virtually the same time, both wearing items that would reassure me that their message had come from her. If one failed, the other surely would not. I wondered how Akimi knew I had arrived in Kyoto. I doubted that it was the basketball plan. Could Akimi have organized both of her friends that quickly? And why hadn't she appeared in person to meet me instead? Akimi should be here. Mm. 
Soon, Jasta said, as we approached an odd-shaped house, the front of it was like an igloo I had once seen in a National Geographic magazine. Instead of blocks of ice, it was made from blocks of cement and was semi-oval with no windows. The middle of the house was one story higher than the semi-igloo and rectangular with a chimney on top. The rear of the house was only one story high, just like the igloo portion, but was triangular like a directional arrow. Both the left and right side of the triangle had beautiful stained glass windows. The architecture of the three different yet simple shapes each connected to the other was unlike anything I had ever seen anywhere. Now, both Jasna's door keys and skirt bells were jingling as she pushed the key in and then pressed her body against the metal door. Please come in. It's okay, Jasna said, sliding her door open. I looked around outside, thinking only that this was not the type of block that I thought girls or women should be traveling down alone. On the left side, there were only woods. On the right side, there was one six-story factory, the first three floors of windows clouded, so no one could see in. Next to the factory was what appeared to be a huge warehouse, surrounded by a large parking lot. And then there was this odd-shaped, temple-like place where Jocelyn lived. Forty feet down from Jocelyn's place was a row of six one-story wooden houses that looked more like they were for play or for pets than for families or full-grown adults. I'd have to bend over or squat low to enter into any of those front doors. Once I entered, their size would have prevented me from standing up straight. I'll wait out here for Akimi, I said solemnly. But when I looked back toward her door, her, toward her door, she was gone. Akimi left these for you, she reappeared, holding a pair of black and gold embroidered men's house shoes. By now, I was accustomed to removing my shoes, a habit that I had pre- previously fallen out of while living in New York. When entering friends or customers' houses or anyone's apartment beside my own. I removed my shoes and put on the ones Akimi left for me. I entered the igloo and surprisingly had to take five steps down into her sunken home. The inside curved walls of her igloo were covered with colorful, expertly cut and placed and decorated ceramic tiles. There was a dull lime light on the ceiling that cast a glow on two indentations in the wall where small potted plants in ceramic flower pots posed. I felt like a leopard trapped in a small but exquisite exotic cave. The stairs that led down to the igloo were made of expensive, high-quality marble. As soon as I entered the rectangular portion of the house, the marble floors gave way to floors of simple gray cement. The climate of spring warmth outside switched to complete coolness inside the rectangle, which appeared to be a wide-open gallery. Instead of a living room with soft feeling and comfortable furniture, there was a workshop with a huge metal tabletop workstation. On the table were three 50-pound mounds of earth-colored clay loosely wrapped in a thick-soiled plastic. 
Besides the mounds of clay, there were soiled tools made from metal and wood, as well as a two-foot-long sturdy piece of wire cable. Off to the side and behind the workstation was an incomplete, moist, clay, loosely wrapped sculpture of a female. On the side wall were shelves sectioned into cubes. Every other cube held a pot or a vase of various designs. The cubes between were shelves of oversized books on art, art history, culture, and religion. Jasna excused herself and then tiptoed into the triangle situated at the back of the house behind a dark purple velvet curtain. I stood motionless, yet my eyes were surveying all the handmade creations with wonder. The curious layout of this place, where unlike things were all merged together, was bizarre but exciting. When the girl that my wife called Joe returned, she was not jingling anymore. She had switched into blue denim shorts with the threads shredded around each of her thighs, both breasts full like mangoes pressed against a tight blue tee that was cut above her diamond belly ring. Oh, Allah. Honestly, I wanted to tell her to go back and put on some proper clothes, but I was standing inside her place and was more grateful toward her than anything else. She handed me a nicely cut, sturdy cloth shopping bag marked Takashiyama. I took it and looked inside. There was a huge white box, the kind that something brand new and expensive would sit inside. Jasta smiled at me politely and said, your wife's crocodiles. So I knew they were the 500,000 yen sandals Akimi had instructed Joe to wear to grab and assure my attention. If they stay here with me, I'll keep them. They're so tempting, isn't it? But Akimi has the handbag that matches them perfectly. Jasna boasted for her best friend. Chai, panai, mitsu, or water? Jasna offered, showing off her command and ease with the English, Hindi, and Japanese languages. None was all I responded. She seemed surprised and said, Hanto, meaning really in Japanese. Hi, arigato, I confirmed. Are you going to stand there the entire time, she asked. Come in. You can sit down there if you'd like, she offered. Do you live alone, I asked her. She smiled. Yes, this is my art palace where I create. I really need this place. It's three minutes away from my college. Akimi loves it in here also because she can also do her artwork here peacefully. And it's far enough away from her home. It's like our getaway place. You know that she likes to paint in the nude and stays up late into the night till early morning like me. When she's in her art world, she doesn't want to be interrupted. My mind was swirling now with exotic images of my naked wife drawing and painting passionate pictures with her erotic Nepali girlfriend in a peculiar art palace. I took some steps further inside. Would you mind if I looked around your place? I don't mind if you don't mind. If I do some work while you're here waiting, I have so much homework and not enough time and a big art show coming up. She shifted from her peaceful posture into a reflective panic. I stayed up all night speaking with Akimi and couldn't resist helping her to meet with you. Now I'm a bit behind my work schedule. Look around. Akimi's drawings and paintings are over there. 
and my sculptures and such are right here. Are you sure you don't want tea or water? She asked again. I'm good, I assured her. Barefooted, Jocelyn evolved from being a gracious host and best friend into a mud princess. Clutching a fistful of clay, she wiggled toward her art throne, a handcrafted stool with legs wrapped in thick purple yarn and a carefully cushioned, colorful cloth seat. She sat softly, spread her legs around her potter's wheel, stared into the center of the wheel, and tossed the clay right in the middle. Her turquoise gold-tipped toes tapped a button, and the wheel began to turn between her thighs. She leaned over the wheel a bit and placed both hands lightly around the clay, guiding it into shape. I walked to the other side of the room, where my wife's work was displayed over a serene, salmon-colored wall. I questioned myself. My footsteps became heavy. My heart became heavy. My mind became heavy. As a Muslim man, I was out of balance, and I knew it for certain. Even if it were not Ramadan, the images that my eyes had been concentrating on and the desires that were flooding my physical and the thoughts that were tempting my mind were not right. In the Holy Quran, in a surah titled Al-Nur, meaning the light, there is an ayat which says, Say to the believing men that they lower their gaze and restrain their sexual passions. That is pure for them. Surely Allah is aware of what they do. I had not been reading my Quran in Japan, although Ramadan is a holy month when Muslims read the Quran even more than on an average day. Instead, I had been flipping my Japanese vocabulary cards in my attempt to learn and memorize and communicate. I had been reading history books on my wife's father and family. I had been focused on getting my wife back, yet the spiritual cost was high. Facing the first drawing on the salmon-colored wall, I saw the sort of image that had been flooding my sight and mind all day. It was a detailed drawing of a naked girl, a naked teenage girl with her legs spread open, where she was seated on a stool with her head hanging low and three feet of hair hiding her face. The way her legs were drawn so shapely and perfectly, the way both her feet were raised a bit as she balanced on her toes, was an incredible display of Akimi's talented fingers and eyes. Yet, as I looked even more closely at the drawing, I felt a heat rising up within me. It wasn't passion. It was anger. The stunning girl in the drawing could easily be my wife. Murder moved to the middle of my mind again. Who really drew the picture as Akimi posed? Then I was questioning, how could she draw a perfect picture of herself, down to the shape of her private parts? She's a great artist, I know. Others have told me confidently that in her art world, she is in fact a genius, but what I was seeing was impossible, right? Each drawing mounted beside the first drawing pictured the same alluring, nude, beautiful teenage girl in an array of intensely sexual and seductive positions. So engrossed, Jasta stood behind me now. I had not heard her shut off the wheel of her approaching or her approaching bare footsteps. She tapped me. I didn't turn toward her. 
It's not what it seems, she said softly. It looks just like Akimi, I know, but it's not her. This exhibit is the winning exhibit that earned your wife a first prize scholarship to study art in the United States. I guess you could say that if Akimi had not drawn these pictures so passionately, you would never have met her in New York because she would never have gotten there for any other reason, Jasna confided. Look, she pointed at the carefully formed letters around the perimeter of each drawing. These letters are Hangul. It's the Korean language. They are not kanji. I am sure that you noticed that the Korean style of writing is much neater tighter, more precise. She dragged one finger across the letters. This one says, one womb. I kept my back to Jasna as she narrated. Her voice helped to soothe the fire in me. And when the smoke in my mind finally cleared, I realized that I was seeing Ju Yun Lee, Akimi's mother. They were redrawings of the covers of the underground political pamphlets that Akimi's mom and best friend had produced and distributed anonymously. Once I came to understand their meaning, hearing once again the titles One Womb, Virgin Oil, Revolutionary Passion, the drawings shifted from pornography to purpose. But they were still provocative and powerful. Although I understood such representations would not be acceptable to me if they were of my mother or wife, I wondered what drove Akimi to draw these intimate pictures of her then teenaged mother and to place them in the public eye. I turned my face to Jasna, calm now. I wondered if she knew the details of Akimi's mother's life. My temper was checked. Oh, I see now, she said. You see what, I asked. I see now what Akimi was saying about you, about your eyes, Jasta said slowly. I looked away from her. She laughed a short, light laugh. Akimi told me not to even look into those eyes of yours for more than three seconds, she emphasized every other word musically and then laughed again. What's happening now? Where's Akimi? I asked solemnly. She should have been here already. She said she would be. She always does what she says. Jocelyn walked over to the phone. She lifted the receiver and got clay on the buttons as she pressed them. She held the phone and waited. Seconds later, she had not spoken even one word before hanging up. Of course she's not at home, Jocelyn said aloud to herself. Akimi told me she would come here straight away from her doctor's office. I don't know what could have kept her. she say she was feeling sick? I asked. No, she's fine actually. She simply pretended to be ill so that her father would allow her to remain at her house in Rapongi. Mr. Nakamura wanted her to return to Kyoto to begin school right after Golden Week ended 
but she said that she was sure that you would show up there in Tokyo. Even as I was becoming more concerned, it felt good to hear that my wife was completely certain that I would come to Japan to get her. Even as I had doubted her, she was 100%. She had given me that Roppongi address to write a letter to her father before we were married. She remembered, of course. She knew I would show up there. And as certain as she was about Tokyo, she would be just as certain about my arriving in Kyoto. I now knew. I had given Iwa, Ikeda, and everyone who was against our love too much credit and consideration. I felt a little more at ease. Further, I figured that right at this moment, even though Akimi wasn't here yet, it was the best place to gather the most information. When was the last time you saw Akimi? I began. Last night was both the first and the last time I've seen Akimi in almost a year. Of course, you know she was studying in New York. I was still here in Japan. She was sending me letters every week since she was away. I feel like I saw you at the same time that she first saw you, Jasta smiled. I have a stack of letters from her at my cottage and even some over there, she said, gesturing to show me how tall the stack was. Akimi was so cute when she had this crush on you. She watched you closely for three months without ever saying one word to you. It was her first time becoming excited about possibly learning English and her first time becoming frustrated because she found the language difficult and displeasing. We sat on the phone chatting for more than an hour once. She wanted me to teach her the one perfect English sentence to say to you. It was so funny. She was shy and wanted you to approach her, but admitted she was hiding from you. I'd give her something to say and she would think it was too much or too bold or not enough. Akimi said the English words didn't sound like they matched her true feelings. I was surprised to hear that Akimi had true feelings for me before we had ever met face to face or even exchanged any words, but I didn't express that to Jasna. Well, anyway, I went home to Nepal for Golden Week. I didn't even know that Akimi had returned to Japan. The last time we spoke before I went to Nepal, the two of you were married and inseparable and so in love. I wish, she said. Did Akimi go to the doctors alone, I asked. No, actually, she can't go anywhere alone these days. Her father won't allow it. He hired Shata to be Akimi's driver. We've known him since forever. Akimi can't go anywhere without him. She was so annoyed about losing her freedom that last night she made Shata stay in the car outside the whole time that she was in here talking to me from evening until about two in the morning. At first, she had told him to go back home and that she'd call him when she wanted to be picked up, but he refused. So I had Shata sitting outside my front door for eight hours and Makoto guarding outside my side door for eight hours. Jasna took a deep breath and exhaled slowly, bending over and resting both hands on her knees. As she stood back up, I asked, Makoto, 
Oh, he's one of Nakamura's men. He usually secures Mr. Nakamura. Now he's assigned to Akimi around the clock. I can tell she hates it. Jasna tried to soothe me. My jaw tightened. Mr. Nakamura is a really great guy if he's on your side. I certainly would never want to be his enemy. So why did the great guy give his permission for our marriage and then snatch it back? I asked her, hoping to hear one reasonable answer to the question that had been irking me for so long. You really don't know why? Jasna asked. Tell me, I responded. Mr. Nakamura never wanted to give Akimi his approval. The father and daughter were having Hankuki months before she left to study in New York. Hankuki is something that I and probably you will never understand. Japanese teenagers, sometimes they go through this thing where they don't speak to their parents at all. They ignore them completely, both the parents and the child stop talking with one another until they are buried in complete silence. Hankuki can go on for months or even longer. Japanese teenagers are much closer to their friends than to their parents anyway. You're right. I don't understand, I admitted. I knew you wouldn't. I love my parents so much I would do absolutely anything for either of them. And if there was ever a misunderstanding between us, Even if I thought I was right, I would drop on my knees down to the floor and beg their forgiveness. I was watching Jasta's painful expression and imagining any type of disagreement with her parents. The split between Akimi and her father is a great secret between them. All I can say is, it has something to do with her mom. She and her mom were extremely close, like twin sisters instead of mother and daughter. Shiori-san, Akimi's mom, was an amazing mother. She was a mother to me also. Their family seemed happy together. A great sadness came only after she passed away. Brain cancer, I am sure you already knew. When Akimi entered these drawings into the competition, everyone was shocked. But no one seemed more shocked than Mr. Nakamura, The skill of her art was so great, Nakamura-san felt he would lose face with his young daughter, drawing such revealing artwork. Besides, the first prize was an all-expense-paid trip to New York and scholarship to that New York art school. Mr. Nakamura hates America and American culture, so of course he was against his daughter going there. I mean, he hates it so much that he says... English is not a language. He told us that he refused to speak it when he was in college, even though it was required. And he refused for Akimi to learn or speak it as well. When Akimi won the exhibition competition and was selected to represent not only Japan, but the entire artistic Asian continent, she was featured in several newspapers. Mr. Nakamura never admitted to the press that he and his daughter were having hankuki. Instead, when the press wanted his comments, he accepted interviews and spoke only on how proud he was of his daughter and how high his expectations were of her. He denied any suggestion that the new drawings resembled his daughter. Akimi also never publicly explained 
who the model was in her drawings or the motivation or meaning behind them. When her artwork received more and more exposure, she simply announced that she wanted to address through art the controversial issue of the presence of 700,000 Koreans living in Japan, many of them born in Japan, but still not accepted and treated as fairly as Japanese. That silenced everyone and confused a lot of people as well. Although they wanted to understand her, they were afraid to ask. No one in Japan wants to discuss these kinds of topics, not the elders or the youth. Japan is unlike any place in the world, Jasta said, inhaling and exhaling in exasperation. I have been living here since I was six. I grew up here with Akimi. Really, I should be angry with you for taking her away from me, but I can't be. Akimi loves you. So I love you too, she said warmly but without flirtation. Her words, I love you, made my heart shift some, as those words always do. Jocelyn looked at the ceramic clock on the wall. Then she dashed across the room and through the velvet curtain to the triangular rear of the house. I followed her, walking slowly. An Indian statue of a shapely woman stood guard on the side of the curtain entrance. Her hands were slim and pretty, and she held her fingers in a peculiar position. Pausing, I wondered if Jasna had sculpted her. My thought was interrupted by the sound of running water. Can I come through? I asked calmly before sweeping aside the high-quality heavy curtain. Come, I'm in the water closet, Jasna said without hesitation. I expected to enter a kitchen area. Of course, I knew that it might also be her bedroom. The Muslim in me knew that I should stay out. The man in me wanted to rush in before she could rearrange anything. I wanted to check to see if there were any traces of another man in in her and Akimi's art studio. If there were beer bottles or cigar or cigarette butts or even a man's house shoes or robe, a jacket, briefcase or coat or anything that might cause me to distrust Jasna or my wife. It would be bad, but better for me to know than to be played like a puppet. I pulled back the curtain. The scent of eucalyptus rushed up my nostrils. It was a clean, fresh, welcoming and soothing scent. When I entered and let the velvet curtain drop behind me, I could feel the difference in the atmosphere. As the sun shone through each of the four-foot-wide stained glass windows, it cast a kaleidoscope of colors onto the pink satin bedspread and sheets and piles of pillows, purple curtain, pink bedding, and every variation of purple pouring through. I was beginning to form a picture in my mind. The floors were made from bamboo, which gave the room a peaceful, clean feeling. Her queen-sized mattress was raised up a foot from the floor and mounted across a wooden frame, seated on six sturdy wooden feet, nicely carved. There was no backboard, and her entire bed was surrounded by a light-colored lace net. I was unsure whether the net was there to stop mosquitoes and pests or to seduce men with the exotic lure of its intricate stitching. Jasna was standing with her back toward me, facing a strange statue. 
it was a man with four arms who some sculptor had caught in the midst of a wicked dance move. In one of his four hands, he held a flame of fire. She lit some incense as she stood there. She was more silent than she had been before. I thought maybe she was in some unusual ritual. We Muslims do not believe in religious in religious symbols or idols or worshiping anything or anyone other than Allah. I took the opportunity to search with only my eyes. There were no men's cologne bottles or men's robes or shoes or an ashtray containing cigarettes or cigar butts. No men's clothes draped over a chair, nor were both sides of the bed turned down or the blankets or the sheets ruffled or disturbed. There were no condoms or ripped condom plastics or photos of a man or men at her bedside on either of the two short end tables. There were no men's hats or weights or even a piece of sports equipment. In fact, there was only what was completely familiar in a feminine place. Perfumes, sweet scents, fresh cut flowers, calming colors, silk, satin, and lace, velvet, and a pile of pretty panties in a wicker basket at the foot of her bed. This is my room. Come, sit down, Jasna said, as she spread the lace net open and sat on her bed. I opted to remain standing. Sometimes, Akimi sleeps in here, but mostly if we do an overnight, she sleeps in her hammock upstairs. You probably already know, though, she prefers the swing. She has one in her bedroom here in Kyoto. She likes to rock herself to sleep. I didn't respond either way. I had swung my wife back and forth without a swing and rocked her until she moaned, cried, and slept. Akimi, so excited and relieved once, she even peed. Akimi's bedroom is like another world. Before you leave Japan, you have to see it. Look at it one time. You'll never forget, she said, speaking slowly as if she was imagining it. That's how we met, Akimi and I. Mr. Nakamura commissioned my father to make the ceiling for Akimi's bedroom. The ceiling, I repeated. Yes, my father designs stained glass windows like these two here, but these are really nothing compared to what he has done in temples and churches and buildings and even restaurants. Just these two are dope enough, I said, staring at them. Huh? She asked. I said, your windows right here are no joke. But how do you see outside? I asked. There's not much to see outside on this street. You must have noticed. This was just a great location because my college is three minutes away. My father gifted me these two windows, and they're best when the sun is pouring through in a million colors like now. Akimi prefers when the rainwater from Japan's famous typhoons are beating against the glass. She says it looks like the colors are leaking one onto the other. I pictured my wife lying down on that bed behind the net, watching the rain race down the glass. Mr. Nakamura summoned Babaji from Nepal with his special order. Babaji says that four-year-old Akimi described exactly what she wanted. It seemed as if she was fascinated with the sky. She only wanted the glass to have colors that she could see in the sky. She even drew the design of the sky, saying that it was how the sky looked, saying that it was how the sky looked on her favorite day. I listened while keeping my eyes moving around the room 
on all the trinkets and objects instead of on Jasna, who was now holding her legs up and leaning her face on her knees, her bare toes and polished nails burrowing into the satin as she spoke. I was also recalling that in Akimi's mother's poem, there was a line like that. My first love was the sky. Then I wondered if it was Akimi or her mother who was in love with the sky, or perhaps both of them. Then I nixed that thought and decided it was Akimi who was in love with the sky, and her mother had written these lines while thinking of her only daughter. When Mr. Nakamura learned that Babaji had four children, Babaji, I interrupted. That's father in Hindi, sorry, she clarified. Babaji, in this case, is my father. Back then, when Mr. Nakamura realized that Babaji had four children and one of them was a six-year-old girl, he asked my father to bring me along with him once he began the work of designing and installing their stained glass ceiling. Mr. Nakamura said that Akimi was his only child and that she would enjoy the company. I couldn't do that, Babaji. I mean, my father replied to Mr. Nakamura. Then the way Babaji tells the story, Mr. Nakamura told him something that I have heard Mr. Nakamura say at least 50 times over the past 12 years. There is nothing that can't be done. And here I am. Mr. Nakamura sponsored our entire family in Japan. My father went through the awesome process of redrawing the design, matching and merging all the colors and cutting the glass in odd shapes to make them exactly like what Akimi remembered clearly. Then there was the cooking of the glass at incredible temperatures. After the long process of creating the perfect glass picture, my father even supervised the careful installation of the stained glass ceiling into Akimi's bedroom. When everything was completed, almost two years later, the rest of my family returned to Nepal. Akimi and I were like sisters by then. My father allowed me to remain. After all, Mr. Nakamura's job heightened my father's professional profile in so many ways, so I practically grew up here in Kyoto. Don't you miss your family, I asked her. My parents now have a total of 10 children. I'm number four. Of course, I miss every one of them. But Mr. Nakamura sends me home for every holiday. Once he even sent Akimi along with me. Instinctively, I checked my watch. I know, was all Jasna said after observing me checking the time. She should have definitely come by now. Can you hear if someone is at the door when you're all the way back here, I asked her. She pointed to a metal rack in the corner where the two walls intersected. It appeared to be a traffic light with three bulbs, one lime green, one yellow, one red. Akimi has the key, she said. Besides, if anyone comes through our front door, the limelight will come on right up there. If someone comes through the side door, the yellow light will come on. If someone comes through the back, well, obviously the red light will come on. She clapped her hands together once, proud of her little light system. I thought it was clever. You see, sometimes I am listening to music and would not be able to hear my doorbell. Other times I have my pieces in the kiln in that oven you saw out there. It can be quite noisy. Or if I'm at the potter's wheel or whatever, it works well for Akimi too because once she begins drawing and painting and all that she does, 
Who can reach her there in that world? So she also pays attention to the lights. My eyes landed on her weird statue and burning incense that had become sticks of leaning ash. It's Lord Shiva, Jasna said. I didn't acknowledge her idol. She noticed my feeling. I know that you're a Muslim, Jasna said suddenly, and Hindus and Muslims have a long history of war and a lot of blood spilled between them, but I am a Hindu girl from Nepal and you are a Muslim man from the Sudan. Akimi is my best friend. Akimi loves you, so I love you too, Dusty, she said, clapping her pretty, unpainted hands together lightly as if to say the subject was closed. Dusty? I asked. Ha, she said, meaning yes. I was learning. Dusty means friendship, she explained. In the Hindi language, I checked. Ha, Hindi language, she smiled. But in any language, this is the meaning of friendship, yes? She asked. I agreed with her. So, it is only right for me to love you too, Jocelyn said, matter-of-factly agreeing with herself. I didn't think I could describe in details, in words, or in feelings the adventure of my life to anyone, male or female, but each day was moving me into a space where I had never stood before. As a youth, I kept on top of knowing when and if I grew taller or was running faster than before, or becoming more accurate at hoops, or the current count on my push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, and squats, but growing in my thoughts and understanding and feelings as a man was becoming harder to track and even harder to explain. When I turned to ease myself out of this intimate setting and warming mood, I walked instead to her clothing closet where the sliding doors were already half opened. I rifled through her belongings. Finally, I found something long and light yet concealing and tossed it at her. It landed on her lap. Since you know that I am Muslim, put some more clothes on and come out. She looked at me, lowered her eyes and didn't say nothing. As I exited, I saw for the first time the metal dragon swooping down from her bedroom ceiling its body was made curiously from metal forks and spoons, and its angry face was made more pronounced by two bulging red rubies for eyes. She emerged into the rectangle wearing her beautiful long dress, a Nepali version of the Sudanese thobe, I imagined. Now, she was completely covered except for her bare feet. I wondered why some women could not know that this is better. Her other clothes just raised a fire in a man, an untamed feeling and wild thoughts attack that are completely physical and not about love. These images and thoughts misled many men and could also slip into disrespect at best or at worst, violence. For a woman to cover was more respectful and calming. It was better that she be mysterious, a subtle suggestion rather than it was better that she be mysterious. A subtle suggestion rather than a desperate scream. Of course, the Islamic hijab and niqab did much more. It is a protective covering and an announcement from a woman that she doesn't want to be viewed wrongly, misunderstood, harassed, or even approached without respectful purpose. Listen, I told Jasna, I gotta go. I'll be back tonight. Is that all right with you? She smiled. Mi casa es su casa, she said using Spanish. 
Every New Yorker knew what that meant. So I did too. Here, write down Akimi's home address here in Kyoto and write down her telephone number. I pulled out my notepad. She wrote in it. May I use your phone? I asked her. Sure, she agreed. I called the number she had written down and given for me and given me for Akimi. I knew now that I had to double and triple check each person dealing with my wife, friend or no friend. The phone rang four times before a voicemail came on. When I heard my wife's sweet voice offering Japanese greetings over the recording, I purposely said nothing. I wouldn't leave any message that might alarm any listener or cause Akimi and me to be traced or trailed. I didn't want to do anything to trigger Nakamura before his trip. I wanted him to leave Japan. With him out of our way, Akimi and I would find each other and be gone from here. I hung up certain I had been given the correct info this time around. It gave me more reason to trust Jasna. What exactly did Akimi say to you about what she plans to do now? She plans to escape with you, but she has to do something first. It has to do with her mother. She wants to tell you about it. She wants you to know, but her father is really tough, really smart, and really rich. He plans to keep Akimi here in Japan. He is using the matter of her mother to force her to obey him. Her mother, I question. I know, you're thinking that since her mother has already passed away many years ago, what could be happening with her now? But her death almost destroyed Akimi, and the anniversary of her mother's death just passed. It was on May 3rd, the same day as her debut and big art show at the MoMA in New York. I recalled the early morning of May 3rd. My wife was even more emotional on that day than usual. She clung to me even though we were outside. She was looking into my eyes with a lingering look of longing, even though we had been together every day and night leading up to that morning. I gave her a strong hug around her feminine frame. I squeezed her so hard that I lifted her off her feet. The moment I released her, she began holding hands with Uma in the middle of Rockefeller Center. I was remembering that it was before most of the shops had opened for that day. How was I to know that she was of mixed emotions? Love for her husband, love for Uma, and the memory of love and loss of her own mother. Maybe Akimi also felt the weight of not being home in Kyoto where her mother's body lay, especially on the anniversary. Maybe Akimi felt guilty for choosing to marry and live in New York, 7,000 miles away from the land where her mother must be buried in the soil. Jasna interrupted my thoughts. Akimi told me that she felt so nervous at the MoMA. Mr. Nakamura was there, backstage with her. She said that he served her some tea to calm her. She said that after the tea, she felt drowsy as she made her presentation before the audience, but that she pushed and fought to remain upbeat. She remembered the audience applauding her. She remembered posing in her kimono for the press, but as she walked off the stage, she felt faint. When she awakened, she was on a flight in a private jet beside her father, Ichiro, and Makoto. Jasna's words painted a clear picture in my mind. In a few thoughtful sentences, she had removed much of my confusion. 
Akemi said she cried all the way home and every day afterward until you showed up. Jasna, thank you. I gotta go. Here, you must take my phone number, she wrote it down. Mr. Nakamura loves Akimi so much, and as I said, he's tough, but please don't hurt him. Akimi doesn't agree with what her father's doing, yet she still loves him as a daughter. Surely you can understand. Did Akimi ask you to tell me that? No, she didn't. It's just that you have a certain look in your eyes. I started moving toward the door to leave. Jasna followed me into the ceramic tiled cave. Akimi said you would show up. And you did, all the way from New York. I'm impressed. When the two of you returned to New York together, do me a favor, she said softly. I was listening. She was so helpful to me. I was prepared to do her almost any favor. When you two reached there, close your eyes and count to 100. When you open them, I will be right there beside the two of you. Akimi is my best friend. I can't live without her, Jasta said sincerely. When Akimi comes here, I told her, or even if she phones you, tell her, I said, for her to come over to the studio, to stay here, to wait for me. Tell her, I said, don't worry about nothing, not money or about her driver or the security or tickets or anything. Tell her to just come. I'll take care of the rest. Got it? I stared into Jasna. Got it, she agreed. As I strolled down the strange block, past the warehouse, and then the factory toward the train station, I watched the sun as it began its final bow of the day. What could Nakamura be thinking? Was it better for his young daughter to be left in the presence of his men and his employ rather than in the presence of her husband? And what about this Shata, Ichiro, and Makoto? How loyal were they to Nakamura? Would they be willing to give their lives in defense of Nakamura's plan? And what of Jasna suggesting that she would move in with Akimi and me in New York? Why did it appear that I was destined to be surrounded by a handful of extraordinarily beautiful women? In my house, full of females, it seemed there would only be them, and me, and my feet and fists, and my guns. My mind shifted like a Rubik's, trying to get back into its original position. Unknowingly, I had jumped on the local and not the express. The ride was long and slow. As the windows darkened, I was working my way back to Chiasa, who I knew would not break her fast without me. Chiasa, my comrade. The meaning I discovered for the word comrade in my dictionary was one of two or more soldiers bound together by a same or similar mission. One who shares and works together with a close friend toward a mutual goal. I thought about Islam, my religion. I believe there is no space for comrades between men and women in Islam. Of course, two or more Muslim men could be comrades. Two or more Muslim women could be comrades with one another. Yet, 
the type of interaction that was taking place in order for Chiasa and me to work together toward a goal, I had not seen any allowance for that in my reading of the Quran. There is no free mixing between men and women in my Islamic culture. Still, I had the feeling that although I had no real understanding of it, Allah had provided Chiasa for me. Sitting on a bicycle in front of the wall leading to the Hyatt, Chiasa was a silhouette. As soon as she saw me climbing up toward her, she came speeding down toward me. Ryoshi, she called me the strange name that she had chosen for me the day after we first met. What are you calling me? I asked her as she squeezed her brakes and almost flipped her bike. Ryoshi, listen first, please. There is a Japanese girl looking for you in the hotel lobby. I overheard her describing you when I was about to return the bike to the front desk. She said my onaka, and the hotel clerk checked and said that there was no one registered under that name. She began describing you to the clerk. Chiasa continued, but by that time, I was racing up the hill to catch my wife before she jumped into a car and left. Chiasa crashed into me with her bike, pushing me forward before I was able to break my fall. I said, listen first. Chiasa said through clenched teeth. She's not your wife, Chiasa chided. How do you know? I asked, putting myself in order and walking uphill as she rode beside me, explaining. I just know, Chiasa said. I told her to wait there. I was out here looking for you. I even rode up to the college. Is she still there? I asked, doubtful and angry. Last time I looked, just her and her dog. Twins, Chiasa said. I paused. Now I knew it was Himawadi. She doesn't speak English, I told Chiasa. I'll translate, but you and I gotta get our story straight first. I told her that I don't know you, but I've seen you around the hotel. I told her that I was taking a course at the Red Cross next door. Why say all that? I checked. Because I read Akimi's diary. And I know what kind of girl she is and all about their friendship. I don't want it to seem like you and I are staying together. And then she mixes up the meaning of everything and misleads Akimi. I looked at Chiasa. I understood. I appreciated her. I felt bad for making her feel like she had to run me down and crash her bike into me to make me hear her. You go in first. I'll show up less than two minutes later, and the hotel clerk warned me that I should have you bring your passport down to the front desk since you're staying here under my name. I told him that you are not staying in my hotel room, that you were just studying at a local college, and we were both studying for the Red Cross course. I laughed. Chiasa had quite a mind. The Hyatt Valet Parkers watched closely as I approached Emawadi. Obviously, she had raised suspicion about me by asking around. As I heard the growl of her wolf, I motioned for her to come to me. She began walking over. I walked back toward the street curb outside the Hyatt so she would follow. She did. As she arrived, Chiasa rolled up and went into action, speaking Japanese. When Chiasa stopped talking, Himawadi's wolf-like wild eyes moved around as though she was uncertain. 
Maybe she wasn't buying whatever Chiasa had said. Her wolf wasn't buying it either. He growled at me. With her curved nails, she yanked his chain one swift time and he yielded. She wrapped the leash more tightly around her right palm and he sat. Mayanaka, she said, and motioned me to follow her and the wolf. When she saw Chiasa flinch, she put her left hand up as if to say stop. Sayonara was all that came out of her cold lips. Because Chiasa wanted us to pretend not to know each other, I followed Himawadi, hoping that she would lead me to Akimi somehow. Her wolf was wearing crocheted boots with a strip of brown leather inlaid on each. Now that I was walking behind her, I could see that Himawadi was also wearing crocheted sandals with a hard sole and a brown leather strip running up the back of her calves. It was cooler now that the sun had set, yet I never understood dressing up a dog. Her wolf was well-groomed. His coat of hair was fluffed and white and clean. It looked like they both had just come from the hairdresser. In a dark alley, we met up with her invisible crew, which had swelled from three to six. I was tight about it. This situation was growing too well known for ninja warfare. The six girls bowed to me all at once. Konbanwa, I offered the evening greeting. They giggled some. Himawadi did not. Name, I asked their names. Lined up like dominoes, they responded one by one. Kiiro, Ao, Midori, Shiro, Aka, Murasaki. I looked at each of them briefly, knowing they were set to make a fool out of a foreigner. I don't speak Japanese, but I had studied my cards and understood clearly that they had given me the names of colors instead of their true selves. Yellow, blue, green, white, red, purple, they had said, but I wouldn't blow their spot. All they knew was my onaka, so we were even. My onaka des, I introduced myself. Just then Murasaki said, I speak English to Himawari-san. Hi, I agreed, but I could hear that she had no real command over English herself. Himawari spoke some Japanese. Murasaki translated. We friends at Kimi, you know that, right? She asked me. Hi. Come, please. She turned and they all turned and walked to the nearby front door of a closed and darkened shop. Midori pulled a thin chain from inside her miniskirt and dangled it. She inserted the key into the shop door. When it opened, they all looked at me. Himawadi was standing behind me with her wolf. I didn't know what they wanted. I thought of everything. Were they trying to set me up on a B&E? Midori went inside but didn't flip the lights on. The others followed her in and they all stood in a row. Please come, Murasaki said. I turned and looked back at Himawadi, the unpredictable ice princess, boss of the invisible doll crew. I motioned with my head that she should go inside. I already decided I wouldn't enter if she didn't. Midori came to stand in front of Murasaki. Since Midori held the keys to the place, I figured she was its owner or more likely the real owner's daughter. Midori began speaking to Himawadi. Himawadi didn't respond. She wrapped her leash around a metal pole planted in the ground beside the shop. She walked in as Midori held the door open. My heart was pounding. Maybe Akimi was inside. I entered. Midori locked the door behind me. Through the dark, 
I could see racks and racks of clear plastic cases. On closer look, they were each a tiny square filled with beads of every type and color. The line of girls walked to the back of the store. Eight people in a row shook the floor and the beads rattled. Murasaki was the first one to drop down a tight, twisted, iron spiral staircase into a basement. The seven of us behind her followed. Welcome, Murasaki's voice said in English, and the light raised up from dark to dim to bright. I was surrounded now by hundreds of tiny glass figurines carefully placed on three steel racks. One by one, each of them dropped down and sat on wooden cubes like crates. But they weren't crates. The walls that surrounded us were all plastered with pictures of Japanese teens. My eyes searched and scanned. My mind merged. The all-girls club in a secret location close to the high school, I recall Chiasa saying. Akimi-san, Murasaki said, pointing to a picture of an even younger Akimi arm in arm with a group of girls. I guessed on quick glance that those were the same girls that were sitting right here. Hi, I acknowledged. Then she pointed to another photo of Akimi, standing alone, wearing some short shorts and a summer blouse. Himawari was the only one still standing up beside me. She was on the bottom step as though she could and would prevent anyone from coming down or leaving the basement. I wanted all seven of them to sit right there where I could watch them all at once and quickly get to the bottom of what they were getting at. Himawari spoke in Japanese. Murasaki spoke in Japanese. Midori got up and pulled the picture from the wall and handed it over to me. I looked. It was my wife in a mean-ass mink. The hood surrounded her entire face. She wore some badass mink winter boots and amazing mink mittens. Yet it was the guy who was standing beside her, leaning on the snowman, that I knew they wanted me to see. When they saw my face change, they knew I saw. I looked up and then around the room, they were all silent. Himawari said something else in Japanese. Shiro plucked the picture from the wall behind where she was seated. Meanwhile, Midori lifted the one I held in my hands and posted it back in its same position. Shiro handed me the next photo. It was a group of girls on a beach with their knees in the sand and some boys standing behind them. Of course, I saw my wife in her one-piece yellow bathing suit, also wearing a transparent lace blouse over it. Ayo handed me a third photo. The same guy was in it, and only Akimi. He wore a baseball uniform. She had a stylish outfit and was wearing what I was supposed to assume was his fitted. I had seen enough. I knew I was on a stage, and these girls were in it for my reactions. So I gave him nothing. So what's up, I asked as they watched closely. Himawadi reached into her handbag and came out with another photo. Kiido jumped up and retrieved it from her and handed it to me. It was the same guy who was photographed with Akimi. But this photo was Himawadi and the guy in a loving embrace. Shata Himawadi boyfriend is now, Murasaki said. I knew she meant Shata and Himawadi were hooked up, I thought for some seconds. Shata, the driver, I said to Himawadi, 
motioning my hands, holding a make-believe steering wheel. Hi, Himawari finally smiled. She said something in Japanese. Himawari will help you take Akimi away, Murasaki translated. I figured Himawari thought it wasn't understanding. Himawari thought I wasn't understanding her point because she broke out of her ice princess stance and spoke these English words. Himawari love Shata. Shata love Akimi. Akimi love Mayonaka. Mayonaka love Akimi. Himawari hate Jasna. Jasna hate Himawari. Ichiro love Jasna. Jasna love Akimi. She stared at me with a cold stare, her wild eyes flashing the wolf glare. Her face was back to cold, and suddenly a wicked half smile came across her face like she could tell I finally got it. Today, tomorrow, yesterday, Murasaki said. Ayo interrupted her and said today. Today, Shata drive away with Akimi and Makoto, Murasaki stated. Shata not return, she added. None of this mattered. If Akimi was on her way to meet me, or if she was already at Jasna's. I could dash out and leave these girls to their gossip and girl worries, I thought to myself. Phone, I asked. Midori lifted the phone from the floor behind the cube where she sat. I called Jasna. Namaste, she greeted anxiously. It's Mayanaka. Is she there or on her way? I asked Jasna, speaking discreetly on purpose, with 14 eyeballs burning a hole in my face. No, I'm not going to be able to have the party, Jasna said oddly. Party, I asked. Play along, she said with a fake-sounding joyfulness. I am packing now. The tough one sent for me. Makoto? No, she denied. Nakamura? Ha, she confirmed. Someone is standing over you right now, I asked her. Ha, she confirmed. Where is Akimi? Was coming to party, but it's all been canceled, she answered strangely. I tried to read between the lines. I'm packing now. Where are you going, I asked her. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cancel, she dodged. Obviously, she could not say the name of the location without giving it all away. Is Akimi going with you, I asked hurriedly. Already there, she revealed. Where? A tough one's parent. I think it might be cold. Is it a place here in Japan, I asked. Ha, she said, then hurriedly added, sure, you can still come here if you please. I won't be here though, she said, which I took as her asking me to go there, although I didn't know why or what for. Where are you going, I asked Jasna. I heard a speck of her voice and then a click off. She had been talking. Someone else disconnected the call, I believed. I stood thinking. Maybe the man standing over her was Japanese, who didn't speak English, or maybe he spoke some, but not enough to sift through her strange babble. Maybe there was more than one man standing watch over her and listening. She wouldn't and didn't say my name or Akimi's name during the brief exchange, and she wouldn't speak the name of her destination. Himawari's glare was growing more wolfish. The thought battle had thickened to a degree where I needed to move think, speak, and stepped, and step swiftly. Realistically, I didn't have the answers, yet I was certain of one thing. Himawari would become a problem. She wasn't on my side, 
or Kimisai. She wasn't a soldier or a ninja like Chiasa. She had now broadened the scenario to a three-front war. She had also entered as a wild card because she knew all the players. She could start running her mouth, sounding alarms, standing a witness against everyone, and protecting only her interests. And she brought along her invisible army, six girls who were clearly not on the level of Himawadi or Jasna and definitely, definitely not Akimi. Any one of them trying to come up and gain visibility might easily use this situation to cast themselves in a larger role, I thought. Have you spoken to Akimi? I broke my silence and asked Himawari after I handed Midori back her phone. Murasaki translated my question to her. Just yesterday, Himawari said, Murasaki translated. What did Akimi tell you? I asked. Murasaki translated. Akimi says she loves Mayonaka. She marry Mayonaka. She don't love Shata. Shata is always like brother to her, Himawari replied through Murasaki. Akimi show me, Himawari gestured, moving one of her hands over the other and making a circle around her marriage finger. Her wedding ring, I asked. Hi, Himawari said. Then she made a circle around her wrist. Bangles, I said. The girls showed some confusion. Bracelets, I said. Murasaki translated. Hi, Himawari agreed. Then she moved her hand with long, slim fingers and curved and pretty painted nails across her neck and slid her finger down between her breasts. Then she brought her hands down and rested them between her legs, pressing in on the cloth of her already short dress. She stared me dead in the eyes. I want, she said. It was as though she had tapped me in a game of freeze tag. The ice princess had frozen me. I knew she was saying she wanted passion marks pressed on her body, same as I had loved them onto my wife in those exact places. A wave of heat shot through me. Then I was unfrozen. Shata-san, is all I answered. Her man needed to take care of that. Her invisible crew was out of the loop and looking around at one another. Himawari spoke Japanese again to Murasaki. Murasaki translated. Akimi said she will go to New York in two weeks. She will stay living there. But Himawari don't believe because Akimi left with Shata. Shata says he will be away for 10 days. Where did Shata go? I asked. Naisho, Himawari said. I knew that word meant secret. Shata said it was a secret, Murasaki clarified. Himawari is angry, she added. Why? I asked, going for as much info as I could get. Because Shata say he will not call Himawari before he comes back, Murasaki explained, and Himawari doesn't know where he's gone. After a long pause, I said, I'm leaving Kyoto tonight on the Shinkansen. I'll fly back to New York tomorrow morning. In two weeks, Akimi and I will be together. A few of the invisible ones gasped. The others gasped after Murasaki's translation of my words was completed. Himwari-san, I said to the ice princess, my Akimi does not love Shata. 
you should not worry. When Murasaki translated my words, Himawari, the ice princess, began screaming wildly in Japanese. Her pretty face turned anime, twisted and evil. She pushed over the metal rack beside her, and all the glass figurines went crashing and smashing into pieces on the floor. Himawari had just proven what I already knew. She was a loose cannon, uncool, a liability. I'm sure Shata didn't know that his girl who loved him, whom he didn't love, was the same one who would easily get his ass set up and clap-clap. Five girls scrambled like servants to clean up the tiny pieces of smashed glass as Midori confronted Himawari. I stepped over the glass and brushed up by Himawari up the twisted stairs. I walked through the narrow aisle that ran down the fragile and delicate shop of beads and glass toward the door before I remembered it was locked. I turned around and dropped back down halfway. Midori, let me out, I said with force. But Midori's arm was twisted behind her back as Himawari held it there. Murasaki unclipped the keychain out of Midori's pocket and walked up to let me out. As I exited, Murasaki said, Himawari is good. She loves Shata. Shata loves Akimi. When Akimi was gone, it was good for Himawari and Shata. Please forgive us and have a safe trip home from Japan. She bowed. As I moved beyond the shop, I saw Chiasa squatted down beside the wolf, feeding him something and stroking his fur. We made friends, Chiasa said, smiling. Come on, change your plans. We gotta go. I talked to her as I walked. Fucking wolf, I thought to myself. He growls at the men and purrs like a pussy for the pretty girls. Where were you all day, I asked Yasa. I went to Osaka. Why, did you miss me? She said playfully. No, I just planned to make a deduction from your pay, soldier MIA, I said jokingly. I was trying to soothe my own fury at the same time. Soldier on point, she challenged. She reached for her canteen and asked, Please, can we drink first? Sorry, your throat must be burning, I said, because of the fast. I waited, she said. Lifting the deep blue leather pouch from around her shoulder, she unscrewed the top of her water-filled canteen to offer me the first drink. Allah, I said, whispering. I drank. She drank. We drank. I found the fortress where your 100,000 yen shoe princess lives. It really is a secure location. There are four buildings on the property. I only knew that because I rode above the area in a cable car. When I was on the ground on my bike, the wall that surrounded her place was too high for me to look over or see into. I rode around the perimeter three times and counted five entrances. There are cameras on the main entrance and the rear entrance. Mayu, Akimi's house manager, used a side entrance slid in a key card and tapped in an additional code. So, there are three gated doors that have that system, separate from the main and rear entrance. She inhaled and tried to continue. I interrupted her. Good work, thank you, but it doesn't matter. Things have been changing rapidly all day, I let her know. It took 10 minutes for us to pack and check out of the Hyatt Hotel. We taxied to Kyoto Station and threw our belongings into two lockers. We ate light as we moved, jumping on the train toward the Kyoto Seika University. 
on the express, I filled Chiasa in with every detail that I thought was strategic to our mission. If you would have allowed me to read to you from Akimi's diary, I would have warned you about Himawadi. She is someone who has friends with Akimi from a childhood. She is someone who was friends with Akimi from childhood only because of their father's relationship over the years. Even though Himawadi is from a rich family also, she envies Akimi-san. Chiasa said softly as our train raced. It's not the fact that Akimi is the shoe princess that she envies, or her cars or home or clothes. She envies Akimi's emotions and the effect that Akimi's emotions have on everyone they both know. I didn't say nothing, although I felt in that moment my like for Chiasa deepen. I appreciated that she seemed to genuinely like my wife without ever having met or chilled with her. I liked that she tried to understand Akimi though the diary through the diary and to protect and defend her. I liked that she put all of that in front of her own feelings. That was dope to me.